Good morning. Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia. We're glad that you're here to join us as we worship God by offering our prayers and singing songs and listening to scripture. Please come in with us that we may worship God together. first lesson this morning comes from the book of Genesis in the 37th chapter. It tells the story of Jacob, um, also called Israel, and his sons, uh, particularly Joseph. Let us listen that we may hear what God will say to us. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilpah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to, to their father. Now Israel, Jacob it was his name, loved Joseph more than any of his other children because he was born the son of his old age, and he made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than his, all the other brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peaceably to him. From verse 5 through 11, there's a description of a couple of different dreams that Joseph had. The short version of that is that Jacob dreamed that, or Joseph dreamed that he was lifted up in, uh, in positions of authority over his brothers. They were all bundles of wheat. Joseph's bundle stood up straight, and the other 11 bundles bowed down. Not only did he have the dream, but he told his brothers about the dream, and they did not like that either. Beginning in verse 12, the brothers went to pasture the father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock near Shechem? Come, I will send them to you. He answered, here I am. So Joseph he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring word back to me. So Jacob sent him to the valley of Hebron. He came to Shechem, Joseph came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, Joseph said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? The man said, they've gone, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before Joseph came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall uh, see will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he, believed, he, deliv he delivered him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Reuben said to his brothers, shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him that he might, Reuben wanted to rescue him out of their hands and restore him to the father. 
So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with the sleeves that had been given to him by his father. And they took him and they threw him into the pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying gum and balm and resin on their way to carry down into Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and lay not a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And the brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up. They lifted him up out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The New Testament lesson comes from Matthew's gospel in the 14th chapter. Earlier in the chapter, there had been an account where Jesus had learned of the execution of John the Baptist. He had tried to go away. The crowd followed him. At the end of the day, they needed food to eat, and there is the miracle of the feeding of the crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children. And then Jesus tried to go away again, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 14. Immediately after the miracle of the feeding, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after Jesus had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat battered by waves, was far out from the land, for the wind had turned against them. And early in the morning he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw that he was walking toward them, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost. And they, fear, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid." Peter answered Jesus, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came to Jesus. But when Peter noticed the strong winds, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, when they got Jesus into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Yesterday, Jim Campbell, church member Jim Campbell, shared with me a one of the comic strips out of the newspaper, and it was Barney Google and Snuffy Smith. The doc in the character in the, in the, uh, is saying to the preacher, there's two characters, a doc and a preacher, kind of country people, and the doc is saying to the preacher, what's the secret of a good sermon, preacher? And the preacher responds, that's easy, doc. Have a good start and a good finish, and keep them as close together as you can. Yeah, that's right. 
We all know that. I know that. You know that. And sometimes it really does work. But at other times, it doesn't. And I got to tell you, I'm not sure if it's going to work today. So I'm just going to lay it out there. It's one of those days. I have been praying that the power of the Holy Spirit will show up and that whatever words I use will not get in the way of what God will be sharing with you. And I pray that, I would ask that you would pray for yourself, that you don't let my words get in the way of what God will speak to you. The way of Jesus is, is a powerful way to follow. And so I would ask that we do that together, um, not, to, not for me to get in your way and not for you to not listen to whatever God may share. There are two things that, that really struck me about the, gospel, the readings today, one from the Old Testament and then from uh, the Gospel. In the Old Testament, the piece that, that I fixated on was not so much about what I read, but that part that I told you about, Joseph's dreams, the dreams he had where he was a bundle of wheat and the others bowed down to him because his brothers didn't like that dream. Um, there was another dream, too, where Joseph, uh, th there was the, the sun and the moon, and then there were 11 stars, and everybody bowed down to Joseph. Um, Joseph was probably a little impetuous in telling both his father and his brothers about these dreams, and the brothers just didn't like it. And the father, it says, uh, really wondered what was going to happen. You know, he could kind of see that maybe Maybe Junior was not doing the right thing here. But that dream, that power of that dream was, was, was so strong. In the New Testament, Jesus um, sends the disciples away. He's trying to be by himself. But then he needs to go to them. They're out in the middle of the, of the, of the Sea of Galilee on the, on the boat. He goes to them in the middle of the storm. And as he goes to them, they don't recognize him. They say, is it a ghost? Who's coming toward us? Is it a ghost? Dreams and ghosts, those are very powerful images and, and uh, ideas. Do we do that? Do we, do we have dreams that we just sort of blather on about to people and, and they don't understand what we may be saying? Do we see things that come to us and, and immediately assume that it's something that's negative, like the ghost that's going to hurt us or do something against us? Dreams and ghosts, they, they spark our imagination and sometimes, you know, it's not bad. It's good. Dreams can be good. We, can, we need to have dreams and visions and, and ideas about moving forward. And sometimes the idea of a, of a ghost might be a way of stimulating us to do something else. Here at church, um, we're in the season of preparation for officers, new, a new group of officers to come onto the session in the diaconate. And so um, we've been talking about 
our spiritual journeys, and this past week we talked about what Presbyterians believe. What are the things that, that hold us together? What are our core beliefs? When the officers are installed and, and ordain, ordained in, in uh, another month or so, there'll be a question that is read out loud. It says, uh, do you sincerely believe and adopt the essential tenets of the Reformed faith? What is that? How do we explain what it is our, our faith tradition helps? Well, let me give you this, this thumbnail sketch of what Presbyterians believe. There are things that Presbyterians believe that all Christians believe. You go into any church in the world, any Christian church in the world, and you're going to see some evidence of a belief in the Trinity. God is three in one. God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Different ways of talking about that, but that notion of who God is is Trinitarian, and that God came to be human in Jesus Christ, the incarnation, the Trinity and the incarnation. Those are two things. If you don't see those two things, you're probably not in a well, you're not. You're not in a Christian church. Those are defining things over above everything else. There are things that Protestants believe, our, our Protestants' neighbors, Methodists, Episcopalians, um, Baptists, that we sort of hold together. Um, we emphasize Scripture. Scripture is the way that we hear the story of faith. We know that God works through grace and faith. We don't earn our salvation. It is, it is a gift that is given to us. Those are things that Protestants believe. That's not to say other Christians don't have a role for Scripture or grace or faith. They do. But those are kind of particular emphases that we have. And then Presbyterians, to drill down on it, again, these are not excluded by other faith traditions, but these are particular ways we talk about it. Our election, our calling, our election is for service as well as salvation. In other words, our salvation is not simply a fire insurance policy to keep us out of hell. It is also to serve. We have a purpose to be here in the world. There is, we organize our life in a covenant way according to the Word of God. And the Word of God is not simply Scripture, but the Word of God is Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and that is Logos, that is Christ who is there. We believe, we affirm that our stewardship needs to be faithful and pay attention to the world. It doesn't need to be ostentatious, but to be faithful to who God is. And lastly, the last kind of thumbnail point that we emphasize is that there is a human tendency to idolatry and tyranny. In other words, left to our own devices, we're going to go do something pretty bad. We're going to, we're going to mess up. And that because of that, and because we understand that, we affirm that God sent Jesus into the world to help us transform ourselves and the larger world. We seek justice and rightness by living in obedience to the Word of God in Jesus Christ as we have them revealed to us through Scripture. That last piece, that human tendency to idolatry and tyranny and the need to live and work for justice and um, obedience to God. That's about sin. That's really what that's about. This, the, the, one, the one word answer to that is we affirm sin. We affirm that there is sin and we know it's a reality. Um, and the reason we know it's a reality is because we create idols all the time. We create things that are 
to take the place of God. We do that all the time. The children of Israel in the Old Testament, when they were leaving Egypt, captivity in Egypt, they were on their way to the promised land. They, the, the way was, was, was being made plain to them. Moses went up to the mountain to, and received the Ten Commandments. But while Moses was away, the children of Israel decided that they needed an idol. They wanted some comfort. And so they had a golden calf created, and they commanded Aaron to lead them in worship of this golden object. Now, we may not make golden objects, but, you know, we do make things that replace God. It's very easy for us to replace God, and we all do that individually, and you could even say sometimes we, we make idols out of, out of uh, things that are important. Um, but we do that all too often. One idol that has been created by humanity over the course of, of hundreds of years is the idol of white supremacy. It says that white folks are better than other folks, and there's a lot of noise around that right now. The events in Charlottesville, Virginia over the last two days and the events over a longer period of time, not just the last six months, but for a long period of time, this notion of white supremacy has been around and, and creating noise. It goes way back, not just now, but hundreds of years back. Um, and I don't want to address that issue from a political point of view this morning. My role is to speak about it as a Christian, as a Christian for you Christians, what, what does God in Christ have to say to us about this notion of elevating one group of people over another because of biology? And how do we make our way forward? Spiritually, white supremacy is wrong from the very beginning. The first chapter of Genesis, God's laying out the creation. Day six, then God said, let us make humankind in our own image according to our own likeness and let them have dominion over the flesh of the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the cattle and over the animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In verse 27, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are God's creatures. Male and female, we are made with an image and an imprint of God. We have God's fingerprints in our souls. That is a powerful theological affirmation. Yet we also know that even with that fingerprint, we do some things that are wrong. As, as our faith tradition says, there's the human tendency for idolatry and tyranny. And we're going to wander down into some rabbit holes that, that don't produce good results. And we need to have a way to be brought back. And the way to be brought back is through Jesus Christ. As Paul wrote to the, church in, the churches in Galatia, as many of you as were baptized in Christ, you have been clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is no longer slave nor free. There is no longer male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ. 
And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We are heirs to God's promise, to God's hope, to God's creation. That is the purpose that we exist for, to share the goodness of God's creation with the world. That is not a political statement. That is a theological affirmation. To do this for what is right. This is not a political movement. It is a humanity movement. And those who seek to divide us based on biological identifiers are just wrong. They're wrong at the very core of our being. To know, to, that's not to say there aren't differences. There are differences. But theologically, we are made in God's image. We may not understand all of that, but it is real and powerful. We know a lot today because of the science of DNA. And there are all sorts of ways in which that science has helped advance the quality of life and the purpose of life. We also know we can use that now to figure out who we are individually. And there's a whole movement of genealogical DNA that's being out there in advertising. Recently, my father-in-law had that done, and it came, the results came back, and it, he said that it indicated 90% of his biological stock, his DNA stock, comes from Northern Europe. That wasn't a real surprise. Um, my mother recently did it as well, and 94%, she got a 94% hit on uh, family ties from the British Isles, Scotland, England, Wales, Ireland. Again, not a big surprise. Um, I'm planning on doing that just for my own sake. I want to see what the other side of my family might look like too. Um, I don't think I'll have a lot of surprises, but, you know, maybe I will. I know from my family's history that on my father's side of the family, his grandfather's grandfather, second great-grandfather's uncle, okay, long, long way ago, was a general in the Confederate Army in Mississippi. He was also a Baptist preacher, but he was a general commanding forces. I say all of that to let you know that my own genetic identity is within the world of white. I'm a white person. And it is to acknowledge that I am a child of who I am, and I can't change that. What I can do, though, is I can take the ideas of my ancestors and my, those that have gone before me, good, bad, and indifferent, and I can work with them. I know that in my own life, I have been guilty of racism. I have said things and done things that were not, um, not simply not appropriate, but were wrong. And for that, I need to find a way forward. And the way forward is to 
make our case together. It's, it's like the, the saying of the anonymous movement, one day at a time, to acknowledge where we have been and to resolve to move in a new direction. Folks and families are kind of like dreams and ghosts. They inhabit our minds. In my family, and I'm pretty sure I can say in everybody's family who's here and everybody's family who's watching, there are folks that you really admire and there are folks that you don't for all sorts of reasons. And figuring out how to talk to them and to be with them and to be connected to them is important. We have a biblical vision that each one of us in this room, each person watching, each person in the world is made in the image of God. Donald Trump and Kim Jong-il are made in the image of God. Wow. And you and me, we're all in that same stew. And we have to make our way forward. The biblical vision is that this image claims us in such a way that it can transform us. Voices of discord and disunity will rise up, not only in our nation, but in other times as well. But the Christian faith does not harbor white supremacy. Jesus did not set up a racially exclusive community. And people who want to set one of those up know this. Adolf Hitler recognized it. When he came to power in 1933, he took over the state churches in Germany and he removed people pretty quickly who disagreed with his racially exclusive vision. And eventually, what he did was he realized he didn't need the church. He didn't need Jesus Christ. He excluded God in Christ. Jesus was not needed in that movement. But we need Jesus in the church. We need Jesus to to proclaim Jesus to the world, to show that God's love and God's power is real and present. God took on human form and endured suffering to make a way for all people to understand and come to terms with hope and grace. God took on human form to reveal a dream that is beyond anything we know, that is for the benefit and the blessing of all. As I pondered dreams this week, I thought of Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech. And as a preacher, I'm drawn to that, not simply for the content of it, but for his delivery, for the cadence he used, and for the way he, he taught it or, and spoke it. I've, I've listened to it a number of times, and though I've never heard this pointed out, it seems as if he's working off of a text. And he's delivering it very, very well, mind you. But he gets to a point where the, the cadence rises and the pitch comes up, and it's as if the power of the Spirit makes his words sing, I have a dream. 
that all of this awful stuff that's happened in the world will one day, will one day be changed. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. King's dream was based in part on the American dream. He knows it. He claims it. He says it. It was also claimed on, based on something more, something that cuts across lines politically and ethnically. It was a dream of hope, hope that is found in God through Christ, because that's who King was. He was a Christian. He was a preacher, and that was his context, and that is how he spoke to the world. Hope is something that we aspire to as Christians. It is future-oriented, not past-focused. You cannot drive a car by looking only in the rearview mirror. You look to the future. You look ahead. You check the mirrors to be sure, but you look ahead to the place you are going. Jesus came to the disciples in the middle of a storm. Jesus pulled Peter out of the roiling water and the howling winds as they continued to rise, not after the storm ended, but in the middle of the storm. Jesus was there in the middle of that storm with them. And Jesus is with us too. There is a storm out there in the world that claims we are not made in God's image. There is a dream that says we cannot be brought together as God's children. There is a nightmare that rejects the power of God's love, grace, mercy, and peace. As followers of Jesus, we must stand against those claims. With convictions as followers of Jesus, we must proclaim that God is not the Lord of exclusion. God in Christ welcomes those who labor and are heavy burdened, and he will give us rest. We find ways to share that with others. As I said at the beginning, I wasn't sure how this was going to come out or exactly where it was going to go. But I do know that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is at work among us. If I have said things that disturb you or you find challenging, I invite you to a conversation. If I have said things that you find affirming, I still invite you to a conversation. We all need to be together to find ways to speak. These, this is not an easy time, and it's not simply a political thing. It is a human thing, and we must find our way forward looking to Christ, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith in all things. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's been a privilege to join you this day in worship. We're glad that you were here. First Presbyterian Church seeks to serve and minister in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor. 
Go in peace as you love and serve God.